The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. We're going to come back to that next week. We'll pick up where we left off in Ephesians chapter 5. In the interim, we've been doing some special things this summer for the last uh, about two months. And one of the very important things that we or that I decided to do that I thought was necessary in light of where our church was at because we were a church plant from scratch a year ago, just finished one year, and in a church plant from scratch, you have very uh, specific phases of growth that you go through, and you need to consult God's Word to understand His pattern, depending upon what stage of growth you're in, to follow His model, particularly in the book of Acts and other places. And that's what we need to do as a church plant. We're only a year old. And that's exciting. Yippee! We're a year old. We're a baby. We can walk now, I think. Uh, but we still suck our thumb and all those other things that go along with that. Very dependent and needy, and as we should always be upon God. But we're in a very unique stage and phase. But just so you know, what being a, being a part of a church plan is very unique. And you have to keep calling yourself back to that perspective. If you ever get in the mode as a regular attender or a member here to get so myopic to think this is just a regular old church that's been around 20 to 30 years, that's not healthy. It can be actually detrimental because it's not helpful to the cause of what God needs to do in a church plant from scratch. And what I mean by that is the perspective we need to keep coming back to is that we are still in foundation laying mode. That's even a biblical pattern that you see particularly in the book of Acts and practically even churches around us. For example, Valley Church, a neighbor church, good church. I know some of the pastors there and the saints there, and they planted a church, and they, they have a three-year plan. They see foundation laying time written out as three years just to lay the foundation. So just because we've been here one year, we, we've done all the work we need to do, that's not the right thinking. That same pattern of many years or multiple years of foundation laying time was established by the Apostle Paul very clearly, and he is the master church planter, planted over 10 to 15 different churches. As, as an apostle of Jesus Christ himself. And he understood that. He went into Ephesus and planted a church from scratch. And he spent three and a half years there laying the foundation. Primarily spending his time simply raising up leadership. He could not leave that church until a leadership that was competent was intact. And after three and a half years, he did. He left that, but he still didn't give up. He knew it was still foundation laying time. And then in Acts 14, it says that Barnabas and... Um, Paul were going back to churches that they had already served in. They are already planted. And they went back to encourage, uh, to continue the work, to appoint and train elders, to strengthen what remained, to place things in order. These are all technical terms and phrases referring to church plant work. And I've shared many times over the course of the last year of the number two rule or law of church planting. And what is the number two law of church planting? It's... Flexibility, flexibility, flexibility. I don't think I ever told you what rule number one was or law number one. So today is the day. I will unveil law number one of church planting and it's work, 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 hard work. Really? I mean, of course, prayer and dependence upon God and all that comes first. But from a human perspective, rule number one of church planting is work. It's on, it's, it is ongoing. It is constant. It is unexpected. Uh, it is foundation laying time and that's where we are. We're in foundation laying time. We'll probably be in foundation laying time from anywhere from one to three to five years. That's just the nature of how Christ builds his church from what we know from Scripture and practically the way it's been done for the last 2,000 years. It's a joy. It's a lot of work. 
flexibility, but it's exciting because you step out in faith many times because you're, you're, you're setting precedence. You're breaking new ground. You're going where no man or woman has gone before. Like, you know, Captain Kirk. That's kind of exciting. But what that means is you've got to trust God. You have got to step out in faith. Uh, you've got to plan. Jesus had a beautiful balance, Jesus said, to laying foundations, right? He said, count the cost. You do got to do your homework, right? But eventually you've got to step out. Step out in faith. Jump off that cliff. That's only after you have counted the cost, trusted God. That's church planting work. So we are in foundation laying time. So that takes us back to two weeks ago when I talked about first time I've ever preached uh, on the importance of elders in the church, who elders are, what they're all about, and why they are absolutely key and essential to planting, starting, running a church. Those are the basics you need in place to plant a church is you need godly leadership set in place. We're going to lead and teach, pray for, minister to God's people. Uh, but also a very essential part of the foundation of a church to maintain it once it has begun is what we're looking at today, and that's the topic of deacons. A church needs deacons, needs to establish a deacon ministry. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And today we're just going to do an overview of the deacon ministry. What are true biblical deacons? And I put there in your handout that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, and we're going to read that, Paul, the apostle from God, outlines the qualifications for the two basic offices in the local church, elders and deacons, or what we learned was overseers and deacons, shepherds and deacons, pastors and deacons. Those are the two offices. There aren't three. There's not one. There's not four. There's two that God gave. These two offices, elders and deacons, comprise the foundation for stable church leadership. So today we survey what the Bible has to say about biblical deacons. And I've just kind of systematized some key scriptural passages to come up with some main principles by which we can have a grid to understand God's point of view on this, on biblical deacons. Let's go ahead and look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. We talked about elders. Now we're going to look at deacons. It has to be read together because it's a unit. It goes together. Elders and deacons in that ministry goes together. They complement one another. And the context is all one unit. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires or desires to the office of overseer or elder, that's what that means. It is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer or an elder, says Titus, then must be above reproach. These are the qualifications of elder. The husband of one wife. Temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, that means not a fighter or violent, but rather gentle, uncontentious, not harsh. Uh, he's free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household and his kids... How in the world would he be able to take care of the church of God? And he must not be a new convert, lest he become conceited by getting too much power and authority too quickly and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, Satan. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, unbelievers, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then here's, so those are qualifications of elders. Now he transitions to deacons, okay? These are two formal offices of the church. Deacons, likewise. See, that, that word likewise is very important. It connects it with the first seven verses. Elders and likewise deacons. You need both, two offices. There are qualifications for those. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, 
both holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let these deacons also first be tested in church, in the ministry. Then let them serve as deacons after they've been tested if they are above reproach or beyond reproach. 11. Women, some translations say wives. Literally, it's women. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, let deacons be... Notice it goes back to deacons again. So it gives qualifications for deacons. It says something about women. What's up with that? In verse 11, it goes back to deacons in verse 12. What's up with that? Well, I'm not going to... That is a very difficult question. And so we're going to... Since it's so difficult, I don't want to talk about it. We'll skip it. How's that sound? That's another sermon another day. That's when we talk about women or deaconesses or whatever those women are in verse 11. Go back to deacons, verse 12. Let deacons be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children in their own household. For those deacons who have served well or served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there it is. The office of elders, the office of deacons, the only two offices that God has appointed in the church from this text. Uh, we will talk about deaconesses in the future. Uh, and there are specific qualifications for the capacity in which these men serve. So let's go ahead and look at what the Bible has to say in terms of an overview regarding deacons. First, point number one I've got there is that the word deacon means servant. The word deacon means serpent. The Greek word is diakonos, a deacon. And it's used all over the place. Jesus was called a deacon. And Jesus diakonied, or whatever the verb form is. He served. He was a servant and he came to serve. So it was just a very, in Paul's day, Jesus' day, the word diakonos, it was just a general generic term and it just meant servant. It can mean, and depending upon how it was used, it meant a lot of different things could apply to a lot of different people. It could have been a butler in a home, uh, sometimes synonymous with slave, just a lowly person who is into helping and doing practical, mundane, physical work to assist and help others, regardless of their status. So a very umbrella, generic, general term, deacon. Okay. Um, then over time, once the, the Christian church started, the Apostle Paul particularly began using the word deacon in a more technical, narrow, and specific sense in the church. So it went from general to a very specific and technical term. That's why I put down there the word deacon in the New Testament is used generically or generally in many different contexts, but also at times it is used very specifically in a technical manner. And 1 Timothy 3 uses the word deacon in a technical manner. In 1 Timothy 3, when it says deacon, that doesn't refer to every Christian. Not every Christian is a deacon, according to 1 Timothy 3. That's the office of deacon. So that's the technical sense of the word deacon. This is not uncommon in the New Testament, by the way, to have a generic word that can mean a lot of different things. And then in different contexts, it takes on a very specific, narrow, technical meaning, especially for the church. Example, apostolos, an apostle. Actually, you know what that means? That was just a Greek word for one who was sent. An emissary, a messenger, if you will, kind of like an ambassador. Anybody can be an apostle, depending upon how you use the word. My representative uh, being sent. And then Jesus took that very common word and he made it very specific and he talked about 12 men who were his apostles. And then they became the apostles of Christ. The 12 apostles with a capital A. So in the New Testament, you have apostles generically with a small a that just means those who do uh, messages on behalf of other people. And then you've got the capital A, technical use of apostle reserved for Jesus' 12 apostles and then also reserved for Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, 13 designated, specific, technical 
uh, apostles. So that's just one example of another word that was common that became very technical in its usage in the church. The same thing is with disciple. Disciple means what? In Paul's day, in Jesus' day, a disciple was simply a learner, a student. That's all it meant. You could have been a disciple in the school of Aristotle and Socrates and you were just simply a learner. That didn't mean you loved God, knew God, or were a believer. In Paul's day and Jesus' day, if you were a disciple, you were simply a student. That's all. That's how it was used generically. And then Jesus began to use the word disciple in a technical sense, sometimes synonymous meaning a true believer, sometimes even being used in a more narrow sense for the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. And then in the Christian church in the book of Acts, many times the word disciple is used very technically to refer to a believer, a Christian. Not always used that way, but in a technical sense, it is used that way. So there's just some examples. The word angel is the same thing in the Greek. Angelos. Literally, a messenger. That's all it meant. Jesus had human messengers in the Gospels. So the, and at times it takes on a technical sense. It could have been a supernatural angel or messenger. A demonic one, a holy one. So those are many examples of biblical words that can be used in a technical sense at times. And in this case, 1 Timothy 3, we are talking about a technical usage of, the, of a common word called deacon, servant. And I do want to emphasize the meaning, the root meaning of that word even in this office. It means servant. What does a deacon in the church do? He serves. That's what he does because that's what he is. That's what the word, the, the meaning of the word is. So we can't miss the basic meaning of the word. Very important when we talk about structure and so on in leadership in the church as to what does a deacon in the church do. His job description is in his name. He serves. That's what he does. Okay, so the word deacon means servant. Go on to number two. There are, oh, by the way, different translations of the word deacon in the New Testament. Minister, help, serve, so on. Number two, there are two offices in the church. We already talked about that, and that is elders and deacons. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 6, the beginning of the deacon ministry. Um, they always go together. Every time deacons are referred to, by the way, in a formal and technical sense, they are always side by side with the ministry of the elders. That is not true about every time the elders are mentioned. Every time you see the word elders in a technical sense, deacons isn't necessarily in the passage. Titus chapter 1, Paul told Titus, uh, as I told you, in every ch church that we planted and in every church that we worked in, you need to set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. He didn't say appoint elders and deacons in every city. Very important point. But anytime you see the word technical uh, usage of deacon, it is always in conjunction with elders, shepherds, overseers, pastors, or leaders in the church because they go hand in hand together. Um, so there are two offices, elders and deacons. Philippians 1.1, we read that two weeks ago, and that was where the Apostle Paul, he went in, planted a church in Philippi, uh, stayed at Philippi, raised up leadership in Philippi, stayed in contact with that church he planted, and then later on he wrote a letter to them. He said, grace to you and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ to all the saints at the church in Philippi, all the saints, everybody, including the overseers and the deacons. So Paul acknowledged those two formal offices in the local church. That's it. Very important. So there are two offices in every local church, or there should be elders and deacons. Number three, the office of deacon arose from practical necessity. This is very interesting. Even if you do a historical study, did you know that there were elders in the Old Testament? There were. The ministry of elders arose in the days of Moses, we think, as we look back in the Old Testament. Because Moses was trying to lead, shepherd, and administrate two million people in the desert. Try that sometime. 
You need help to do that. So God raised up assistants, heads of families, and a group of ministers called elders, and they kind of formed a quasi-leadership to assist Moses in leadership. So that's the origin historically of elders from a biblical point of view. And then in the book of Acts, you've got the apostles who were the leadership board of the first church that ever existed, the church in Jerusalem. And many times in the book of Acts, it says the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the elders. When they had to make a big, important decision, like in Acts 15, the Jerusalem, boy, what do we do with the Jews? And what do we do with all these laws? We've got all these people. We've got 25,000 people in the church. And we got to, what are we going to do with this money? And it says that the apostles and the elders, the apostles and the elders. and the So that was the leadership church in the first church at Jerusalem was the elders. They were there. The deacons aren't mentioned many times. Apostles and elders and deacons aren't mentioned early on in the church. Deacons were not a technical office used in the Old Testament, uh, never referred to. In Jesus' day, he never referred to the office of deacons. He didn't train 12 deacons along with training 12 apostles who would be elders of the first church. He himself was the greatest servant there ever was, but he didn't train anybody for the office of deacon, even though he was training the apostles for the office of elder of the first church. Early on, as the church began, deacons were nowhere to be found. They didn't exist. Let's go to Acts chapter 1 to see the, this important point that the office of deacon arose from practical necessity. After God started the church, after God planted the church, after eldership was already established and running, after people were getting saved and joining the church like crazy. So this is very important for a church plant to understand this principle. Acts chapter 1, because we believe, we said last week, who builds the church? Jesus, somebody got it over here, I think it was a little kid. Jesus, yeah, that's right, Jesus built the church. And this is how he built the church in the book of Acts. He gave us a model to follow. Well, look at this, Acts chapter 1. Jesus is about to build his church. He died, he rose again from the dead, he's about to ascend into heaven, and he's about to start his church. He's about to start the first church plant in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1. Who did he start with? Verse 2, the apostles. He started with 12 guys, actually 11. Verse 4, he gathered the, the 11 apostles together. Okay, guys, we're going to plant a church. And you're going to be the leadership. And then they had a core group. Boy, who's going to be in our core group? Hey, let's have a fellowship meal and see who shows up. We'll start praying about our core group. Well, they had a core group. Verse 15. It says a whole bunch of people came. And about 120 people came to the preliminary meeting to the church plant and played croquet and had a buffet and talked and prayed. 120 people in their core group. They're about to plant a church. Acts chapter 2. God decides, okay, God plants the church in Acts chapter 2. He starts it with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the church has begun. That's the birthday of the church. Acts chapter 2. It has officially started. It started with 120 people. Started Actually, it started with 11, 120 after it gets saved. And then starts, God starts growing the first church in Jerusalem through this core group of people. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So then those who had received the word as they were, the first church was preaching, they were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Mega church instantly, boom. 11, 120, 3,000 people. Keeps going. It says people kept getting saved. Acts chapter 4. This is an early and young church. Remember the apostles that only 12 guys are trying to balance this thing and lead. You think our AC meetings are long. You should, well anyway. <laughs> Acts 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed the gospel in the number of men. Very specific term. The number of men. That does, so it's including only grown men in this census. Why? Because, well, if you figure out, boy, we can't count the thousands of people. Let's just count the men because we can assume that most of the men are married and they all have 4.3 children. So we can figure out the masses if we just take the men. That's what they did. The number of the men came to be 5,000 added to the church. 
So now 3,000 plus 5,000, oh, plus 5,000 women, that's 10 plus four and a half children, that's like 20,000 people are added to this church. 20,000 plus three, oh, 23,000 mega church long before Rick Warren was around. 23,000. Keeps going, didn't stop there. Uh, go to chapter 5. Verse 14. All the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. It's growing, growing like crazy. 30, 40,000, bigger than now, now bigger than Joel Olstein's church. Verse 28, chapter 5. Now they've filled the entire city of Jerusalem. Church is going crazy. Houston, you've got a problem. You've got 11 guys trying to lead 40,000 people in the local church. How in the world do you have a fellowship meal for 40,000 people after church? I don't know. But it became a problem. Look at Acts chapter 6. Now at this time, 40,000 people in the first church in Jerusalem. Now at this time, the disciples were increasing in number. This church was growing like crazy. And a complaint arose. Isn't that like the church? That's just inevitable, isn't it? Among believers in the local church, a complaint arose. Literally, a dispute arose. Even in the first church of guys who were trained by Jesus Christ Himself as the pastors, you still have a complaint arose in the church. A dispute arose in the church. It's not discouraging. Actually, that's comforting to me. Because when we got disputes in our church, I think, pshaw, Jesus had that in His church. The apostles, they had disputes all the time. Because people are sinful. That's just the way it is. That's the nature of people. And that's what happened here. You've got a huge dispute in the early church that actually was so volatile it could have split and divided the church, cracked the very foundation. So God needed to intervene, and He did. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of two camps, two groups of Christians, Hellenistic Jews. That was Greek-speaking Jews. These are not Gentiles. These are Greek-speaking Jews, probably not indigenous to Palestine, but maybe immigrated from outside, born in another country, but they were Jews. And their first language was Greek. And they moved to the church of Jerusalem, and they became Members there are involved in the fellowship there on a regular basis. And the dispute arose between Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrew Jews. That refers to Jews whose native language was either Aramaic or Hebrew, but not Greek. So what you have in this local church is you have two kind of homogeneous groups trying to get along, function, serve, worship together. And the division or the demarcation is based on their culture and their language. A modern day parallel might be you have a Chinese Christian church where you have the English speaking congregation trying to mix with the Mandarin speaking congregation. Very same thing. That's exactly what was going on here. And a dispute arose. Who's the dominant representation in the first church of Jerusalem of 40,000 people when you have this division? No doubt the dominant representation goes to the Hebrew Aramaic-speaking Jews who were born and raised in Jerusalem. So the minority Christian group here are these immigrants, these Greek-speaking Jews. As a matter of fact, all the 12 apostles were in the latter camp. They were Jewish, Aramaic-speaking Jews. So the entire leadership of this church that they belonged to, they were all Hebrew and Aramaic-speaking. Not, not They knew Greek, but that wasn't their first language. So guess who... So there was a, a problem here and a frustration. Um, so there's a dispute between these two camps, Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows, women, were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And this had to do with collection of money that was being given to help the needy, to help those in the church, particularly the ministry to the widows, meeting their needs, as particularly the book of James commands the church to do. 
and you've got all kinds of people. This is a monumental administrative and logistical nightmare of a task to deal with when you've got that many people. And the dispute was that some people were being overlooked. Some widows were being overlooked. Their needs were not being met. Some widows were getting stuff, everything they needed. And then you got some other Christian little old lady over here who's just totally lost in the cracks, falling through the net. Basic needs not being met. So actually the dispute of the concern was legitimate. The question is, how do you go about trying to resolve the dispute? Thank God this is where God intervened in His wisdom by using these godly men who were really the elders or the leaders of the first church. So what do you do when you have a dispute that is church-wide? What do you do when you have a huge problem that could potentially turn into a church split? Well, here's what the apostles did, and we need to learn from that. It says the apostles, who were the twelve, who were the leaders of the church, it said they summoned the whole congregation. They had a special church meeting. And the, the wisdom here is that they, they needed to communicate to the people. Communication is so important. No secrets, no hiding. You know what? That really frustrates the saints. When leadership hides things, hides truth, makes decisions in dark corners that you don't know about, that's key. Clear, upfront communication to the saints. This isn't the elders' church. It's not the apostles' church. It's not the pastor's church. It's Jesus' church. Full disclosure, communication. Let's get everybody together. Let's air this out. Let's analyze it objectively. Then we can actually meet the needs and solve the problem. So the twelve, they summoned the whole congregation of all the disciples and they said, and they took leadership. They were decisive. They were clear. They had a plan. And they were solution-oriented. They weren't in fear and confused. And oh, what should we do? So this is an amazing model for us. Very practical. It says, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So the first thing that the leaders of the church did is, what did they do in the midst of all these huge uh, penetrating problems that infiltrated the whole church? The leadership of the church decided, point number one is, as a leadership, they decided, what is our priority as leaders? What are we supposed to be doing? Because we need to set the trend in terms of leadership. Everything else needs to fall in accord and in sync with that. we got to know what we're supposed to be doing. If we, as the leaders of this church, don't know what we're doing, how in the world can we solve everybody else's problems? So that's why they approached this problem this way. They knew, they did self-evaluation. They thought about the three-and-a-half-year seminary education that they got from Jesus himself, who trained them specifically what they were supposed to do. Okay, guys, Peter, I'm building the church on your on you, man. You're the quarterback. You're the head. These 12 guys... Here's your priorities. I showed you how to do it. I told you for three and a half years. Stay focused. Peter remembered that, as did the twelve. And that's what they said. Point number one. We've got a huge, massive problem here. But let me remind you, church, it is not desirable for us, the apostles, to neglect our priorities. What was that? Very simple. To neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Peter is not minimizing the problem here at all. He's not just blowing it off. He's not saying, well, you know, whether widows get fed or not or how the money is distributed and those kind of things, uh, that's really not important. You know, that only, and he, he could have given the spiritual answer. The only thing that matters is spiritual truth and reading and studying your Bible. Everything else, forget about it and who cares if there's a problem. He's not minimizing the problem at all. He's just reprioritizing. As for us as your leaders, we cannot neglect our greatest priority. The Word of God. And he's going to say something regarding that in just a second. In order to serve tables. As a matter of fact, they go on to say that actually these tables need to be served. This problem needs to be solved. And so here is our solution. Verse 3. Here is the solution. We need your participation. 
You, believers, select from among you brethren. That means Christians, Christian men. And this is just specific to the case. Uh, Peter, they decided, well, we need probably seven men could probably manage this in light of what we learned from Jesus about managing multitudes and problems. If you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000, it wasn't Jesus feeding the 5,000, by the way. It was Jesus feeding 5,000 men, which means 5,000 women and all of the children. So it was the feeding of the 25,000 at least. And if you go back and read the gospel accounts, how in the world is Jesus going to feed 25,000 people? Before the day is over. Well, he just divided and conquered. You go and read it in the Gospels. Okay, let's see. Let's divide up into groups of 100. And then we'll divide those down into 25. Okay, and you got that group. And you got any delegated and divided and conquered and delegated authority. That's what he did. And that's exactly what the apostles are doing here. We need, uh, Peter estimates, I, I think seven men will probably accomplish this. We've seen it done. Jesus did it. So choose seven men of good reputation, qualified men. They, and they had to be qualified. And by the way, in this passage, I believe, are the first deacons in the church. This is the first deacon ministry that arose in the church. And that's why the main point of this is the office of deacon arose right here in the midst of controversy, dispute, a practical need that needed to be met. And it was met with the ministry of deacons. The office of deacon arose from practical necessity. So go select from among you certain men. And they needed to have qualifications. They needed to be of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. These need to be godly men. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit because they need to be depending upon the Holy Spirit's wisdom to solve these problems. You need God's wisdom when you're trying to solve, solve a dispute between fighting Christians, don't you? Absolutely. It can be ugly. You need patience. You need grace. You need supernatural wisdom from God to be a mediator and an arbitrator between Christians who are mad at each other. In the midst of dispute. Otherwise, you have a church split on your hands. So these men, they needed to be godly men. Balanced character. Full of integrity. Dependent upon God. Knowledgeable of Scripture. Obedient to the apostles and their leadership to solve this problem. Select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Who, notice, whom we, the apostles and the leadership of the church, will put in charge of this task. These deacons had authority, but it was delegated authority. And they were to serve under the supervision of the elders. Well, these are apostles, not elders. No, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 reminded elders at the local churches that he himself was an elder. If you're a leader in the church, a shepherd in the church, a pastor in the church, you are an elder in the church. So these are elders. Giving direction, making decisions... For everybody else, the congregation, how to solve this problem, and these new first-time deacons. Uh, by the way, the word that Peter uses in verse 2, remember he says it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, in order to serve tables. That word serve is the same word for deacon. That's where we get the word deacon. And he uses it again in verse 4. Well, Here's the strategy. Here's the plan. Here's how you can solve this problem. We're going to go back to our first priority as the leaders of this mega church because we're about to do a church plan, by the way, in Antioch, verse 4. So Peter says we're going to get refocused and the elders, the shepherds, what are they going to do? But we will devote ourselves. The word devote is very specific. We are going to be single-minded about what we're going to do about our job description. Your pastor, your elders, your overseers should be single-minded in terms of their job description. We will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the Word. What are pastors and elders supposed to be doing in the church? Well, this is it. Primarily just three things. They are supposed to be committed to prayer and the ministry of the Word in the church through leading. 
So it's leading, ministry of the word, prayer. That cannot be neglected. The ministry of the word is teaching the word of God to the saints at every conceivable level. Whether it is preaching from the pulpit like this, preaching to the masses, preaching in a small group or teaching in a small group like a Sunday school class or a Bible study, teaching the word of God, the ministry of the word, he calls it in verse 4. That's an umbrella term. So it applies to every situation in life. The teaching of the Bible one-on-one with people. I do that all the time. As a matter of fact, I do the ministry of the Word one-on-one with people in this church more than I do preaching. What occupies most of my time with the ministry of the Word, it's it's one-on-one for me anyway. And also the ministry of the Word that a leadership and elder team is supposed to be doing at a church is in their planning and decision-making. That is also an application of the ministry of the Word. Everything we do and consider. Who we're going to hire? Or are we going to get somebody? Where we're going to have church? How do we do membership? Should we do membership? What are we going to do with this person? Church discipline over here. All of those decisions of leadership have to be filtered through the Word of God, our understanding of the Word of God, and our agreement to that understanding and the application of the Word of God. That is the ministry of the Word. So at every level in terms of a leader, pastor, the ministry of the Word is paramount first and foremost. Coupled with prayer. Submitting everything to God in prayer. Asking for His leading, His wisdom, His rebuke, His teaching, His humbling. So that's the job description of a pastor elder. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Very important. That can't be neglected. By the way, the teaching of the Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God, informs everything else we do. Well, feeding the poor, that's more important. No, it's not. Not in the church. That is not priority number one. Is it important? Absolutely. Did Jesus feed the poor? Absolutely. Did Jesus spend more time feeding the poor than doing anything else? No, he didn't. Jesus spent most of his time on the ministry of the word. Read the four gospels. You'll find that out. He gave most of his time to the ministry of the word and of prayer. Every other ministry flowed out of that. Every one. Whether it's ministering to widows, feeding the poor, doing awana, children's ministry, youth ministry, missions. Everything else is a byproduct of the priority of the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. It's the foundations where it's got to start. That's got to be our focus and priority, and it was for the apostles. And by the way, in verse 4, Peter said, or the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, literally the service of the Word. Again, the word diakonos he used there. Diakonos. And he's saying... What your this dispute is over a diakonos issue. It is a practical issue. Needs need to be met by saints in the church. Widows need to be fed. Money needs to be collected the right way and distributed the right way. Needs need to be recognized. People need to come in and uh, put Christians at ease and be mediators and be able to deal with conflict and clear communication and have wisdom and patience with people. Deacons need to be people, people. To solve this deacon problem. And so that's why most Bible teachers, commentators that I understand, they, they say this is where the deacon ministry began, out of practical necessity. So they did. They chose these men who became the first deacons in the church, and apparently they solved that problem through the ministry of deacons. So that's the office of deacon arose from practical necessity. Go on to number four. And I typed this out for you. We already read this. There are specific qualifications for these deacons, and I get this particularly from first... Timothy 3, and then also we saw some in Acts chapter 6. And what are those qualifications for deacons? Because, by the way, we've been working on elders for the last year in Grace Bible Fellowship, training them, praying with them. They've been serving faithfully. They feel like they have the call of God in their life. And actually now they're culminating the process of ordination. So we've 
we're almost there and reaching one of the main goals I have. My main focus this last year was preaching the Word of God and training elders in this church. I just thank God that hopefully within two months we will have God-ordained, called, trained elders in this church. Goal number two for me for the next year is training up, among many goals, is training up deacons. But God's got to send them our way training. That process has already begun, so we thank God for that as well. Uh, so here's qualifications we should be looking for in our deacons that God raises up. Men of dignity uh, commented on some of this. Not double-tongued. He's not a gossip. He can keep a confidence. Confidential. It's very important. Not addicted to much wine. Not an alcoholic or tempted by it into sin. He's not fond of sordid gain. In other words, he's not into money, money, money. He's into service. That's why he serves. Serves Christ. Holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. That just simply means he lives the Christian life consistently. He's not a walking contradiction. Professing to be a Christian publicly and living in all kinds of sin behind the scenes. He must be tested for a time before he becomes a deacon. Tested in what? Tested in areas of service. Tested in areas of responsibility. Actually, just so you know, I've been testing some men in this church for the past six to eight months. Literally, in training. And you'll hear more about that. And I'm just praying God will send us more men who think they might have the gift or the calling to the office of deacon. They must be above reproach. In other words, they can't be legitimately accused by somebody of something that would disqualify them from serving in that capacity. Husbands of only one wife means he's a one-woman man. If he's married, he's committed to his wife and only his wife. He's a good manager of his children and even his own household in all general respects. Uh, and then Acts added that they are men of good reputation in the congregation, full of the Holy Spirit, and also they are able to make wise decisions because they have to be wise in solving disputes or even meeting practical needs. So... Um, those are the qualifications for deacons. And just on point A and B, because you look at the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, there are some similarities between qualifications between elders and deacons, but there are some differences. So the similarities with elder qualifications simply are deacons need to be men of integrity, which is also true of elders. In other words, they need to have godly character. So that's the similarity. The difference, B, in qualifications are a deacon that separated from elder is that deacons can be new believers or they don't have to be mature in the faith to the same degree an elder does. Because elder, it says that an elder cannot be a new convert. A deacon apparently can be a new convert. Maybe he's saved at age 45, he loves Christ, and he is just a servant by nature. And he can go all out in service in the church. He's not teaching anything. He's just serving. That's huge. So that's a great way to utilize new believers or... Uh, yeah, in your church. It's awesome. They, they have a significant role to play immediately in the church if they pass the test. And then finally, another difference is they are not required to be a teacher. Elders are called, it says, apt to teach, able to teach, competent to teach. That is not a requirement of deacons because deacons, they're not in a teaching role. That's not their main role. Can deacons have the gift of teaching? Absolutely. Uh, I think it was Stephen in that list in Acts chapter 6 did. But they don't have to because they're serving primarily. So those are the qualifications. Number five, deacons function under the supervision of the elders. Very important. Deacons function under the supervision of the elders. It is an office in the church. It's a formal office stated in 1 Timothy 3 with qualifications and with great honor, by the way. If you serve as a faithful deacon in the church, verse 13 of chapter 3 in Timothy says, God will bless you. You will see great honor and blessing in this life by virtue of the respect from the saints you're going to get and also in the next life with reward and commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ for your faithful Service. So that is a very honorable position and office to serve in as deacon, but it is under the supervision of the elders. Okay, So it's not a leadership position. It's a service position. 
Important distinction. Acts 6.3, we already read it. Select from among you brethren or deacons whom we, the apostles, the elders, will put in charge. We are going to be in charge of these men. Guide them. Tell them what to do. And then 1 Peter 5, 1-2, he reminds the elders among them in the churches, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Elders exercise oversight in the local church, not deacons. Deacons will, on a subsidiary level, exercise oversight in light of what the elders think needs to be done. Uh, and that's points A, B, and C. Just we'll read through those. Deacons function in a supplementary manner with the elders alongside of... And also the supplementary manner is that they relieve the elders of duties that the elders shouldn't have to be bogged down with. And that's going to happen in a growing church. That's, going to, that's important in this church plan. As we grow, we are coming up with new things we're faced with all the time. That's why these advisory council meetings just keep growing. Seven hours, 12 hours, 15... Who knows how long it's going to be tonight. But anyway, we need to be relieved of duties we shouldn't be doing. We need to delegate these things out. Simplify. Refocus. So we need some supplementary ministers to relieve us of this work. B, deacons function in a complementary manner with the elders. They're supposed to be teammates in this, not competitors. I worked at a church where they had an elder board and a deacon board and they had different board meetings and different chairmen of their board and they were literally competing with one another. It was not pretty. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where it says you have to have a deacon board. Now, if you have a Baptist background like I do, a member of three different Baptist churches and worked in two Baptist churches, that was the structure. He had a deacon board. And as a fact, the deacon board, they were leaders, they were overseers, they made the decisions, they were the employers of the pastors. That is not in the Bible. That is man-made. It's not, it's not biblical. The deacons are servants serving under the leadership of the elders who are the supervisors. So a de if you're a deacon in the church, you're not Mr. Big Shot, all authority, making all the decisions. You're not supposed to be according to the Bible. Deacons don't rule from on high, but serve from down low. That's what a deacon is, according to the Bible. And true deacons who are called and serve in this capacity, you know what? They don't despise the fact that they're deacons, that they're sanctified servants. They have great fulfillment and joy in this calling of being a deacon. That's how you probably know you might have the gift or desire. If this appeals to you, being a servant in the church. And then finally, cease uh, deacons function in a subsidiary manner under the elders, and that's just they're willing to submit to the leadership of the church. They submit to the elders, not competing with them, not trying to override or usurp their authority. They're submissive servants. And uh, just in conclusion, I want to say, uh, be praying for Grace Bible Fellowship. We need to go to the next level. The next, We are still in laying the foundation mode. I'm not going to get distracted, by the way. You can come up and tell me, we need this program, we need this program, we need this program. And I'll say, oh, good. God, Maybe God's put that on your heart. Why didn't you look about starting that ministry? I'm going to be doing this. We're laying the foundation. We need elders. We need deacons. We've got to go in order. And then out of that, God is going to bless our ministry. I need to be teaching, doing the ministry of the Word of God. I need to be committed to prayer. By the way, another important reminder, so you know, because communication is so important. One of the things that I have emphasized with our elders-to-be is prayer, the priority of prayer. And just so you know, we, that's why we pray in the service. Our elders pray in the service for you. We pray every Sunday morning at 8.45 before church starts. We pray at every advisory council meeting for at least 45 minutes, every single one of us together, total 45 minutes. Every Sunday and Monday we get the white cards and we pray for those white cards. We encourage one another to pray throughout the week for each other, for the church. It is an absolute priority. We cannot neglect prayer. and that, Our elders need to be men of prayer. But I, I want to lay this out there. As we look to this next year, pray that God will raise up faithful deacons to help lay the foundation of this church, qualified, godly 
men who are true servants. And even now, if you're, maybe you're a man of God in this assembly right now, and, and this appealed to you. What I described, described about a deacon appeals to you. I don't care if you're a member of this church or not. But if you think this might be a calling in your life, put it down on a white card or talk to me personally and say, Pastor Cliff, I, maybe God might be calling me to a deacon someday and I want to inquire about that. I would love to hear from you. And let's go. Let's see if God's doing that in your life. It'd be an exciting adventure. Well, anyway, thanks for tuning in. And uh, let's just continue to trust God as He builds His church. And uh, thank you, God, for His truth that He's given us today. Let's go ahead and bow in prayer and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank You for today. Just the opportunity to gather to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection on behalf of sinners. And Lord Jesus, we thank You. You are here. You're present. We can worship with You, not only worship You. God, thank You for Your Word, the Bible. It tells us how we should do church and live our life. God, I pray that You would raise up deacons in this church that are called, godly, qualified, faithful. Thank You for the advisory councilmen that You have sent to us. And we uh, commit their process of finalizing ordination as elders to You, that You would bless it. And we just thank You for this day as we commit it to You in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.